Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter just like a couple weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10. When you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash, that's code daily stoic order using doordash today for eligible users only terms apply hey it's ryan welcome to another episode of the daily stoic podcast one of my favorite books of all time and i've raved about it here we carry it in my bookstore the painted porch is the cost of these dreams by wright thompson one of the greatest sports writers of all time certainly of our time uh a great dude who I've gotten to know a little bit. I had him on the Daily Show podcast if you didn't listen. Anyways, got an email from him out of the blue a couple months back and said, hey, you've got to read this new book by my friend Seth Wickersham about the New England Patriots. I know that they'd read some of your books and I think you guys would like each other. I said, are you fucking kidding me? Of course, that sounds like a book designed for me. So Seth sent me his new book, It's Better to Be Feared, The New England Patriots Dynasty and the Pursuit of Greatness which I read actually uh, while I was doing the launch for Courage is Calling. Uh, if you watch the vlog of me heading out to LA to do the promo tour, I believe you can see a shot of me reading it in the car as we were driving through Central California, stuck behind a wildfire. It's a big book, uh, but it covers a long period of time. The entirety of the Kraft, Belichick, Brady dynasty the New England Patriots, one of the great sports teams, great American success stories of all time. Uh, epic for sure. Uh, Seth does an amazing job of doing the book. I've 
read a bunch of other books about the New England Patriots. I love, of course, uh, my friend Mike Lombardi's book, Gridiron Genius. I love Ian O'Connor's book, Belichick. I love Halberstram's book, Education of a Coach. All books I carry in the bookstore, by the way, uh, you should pick up. But this one, while it's not a hatchet job, uh, definitely there were people in the book who were not pleased, uh, who disagreed with things. Uh, Seth is is a real journalist, right? He's not writing some celebratory book. But he is, I think, more interested in what makes them great than trying to tear them down, which I certainly appreciated. You know, there's an in, as we talk about in today's interview, there's some parallels between him and Tom Brady, sort of both pursuing greatness in their respective fields. Uh, certainly, I related to that storyline. I really enjoyed it in the book. But there's a thing we talk about that really hit me the most. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think, certainly in a book about the New England Patriots and Belichick and Brady, there'd be much talk about work-life balance. But I actually found that to be one of the most salient messages in the book. Um, again, to go to Wright Thompson's books, there's also a, a strong sense of the cost of greatness, right? What the cost of these dreams are, what it takes out of a person, um, the struggle to be happy uh, while chained to what the Greeks would call a daemon uh, or, a, or a sort of a genius and ambition um, and the tension and how difficult, extraordinarily difficult that is. So uh, I'm very excited to bring you this interview about uh, one of the great sports franchises of all time. We touch on a bunch of stoic themes with Seth. Uh, he uh, was kind enough clearly to familiarize himself with a little bit of my work and stoicism as well and was familiar obviously with the the way that, that some of the Stoic writings had made their way uh, to the Patriots. Um, but overall, I really love this book. I was so looking forward to this conversation, and I think you are going to like it too. Seth is a writer for ESPN, ESPN the magazine. Uh, he's been on SportsCenter a million times. Uh, he's profiled Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Bill Belichick, John Elway, among others. And uh, he's written deep dives on the Browns, the Seahawks, the Patriots. He's won awards from the National Association of Black Journalists and the Pro Football Writers Association. You can follow him at Seth Wickersham on any platform. But uh, if you don't read this book, if you don't read his writing, you are missing out on some amazing insights, which we preview here in today's episode. I don't know about you, but it's fun to put out a book because like you spent so much time and energy on it and you want the world to see it, but then it's also very disruptive to your life. <laughs> but that's what we want, right? I mean, that's the that's the headache that we all want to contend with. I guess, but it's uh, maybe I'm more like the Patriots uh, <laughs> in, in that in that like I like the grind of doing the thing, like the press conference after the game, whether you won or lost, I'm much less interested in than I am like getting back to my office and, you know, yeah. going on to Cincinnati or whatever. <laughs> I, I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, that makes sense. Because you have I mean, you have a day job, right? Like you're all like, yeah. you know, you're you did this book, but like day to day, you're also trying to work on and file stories. So I imagine exactly. it's a little disruptive. No, it, you know, it has been, and this is my first book. And so, um, I don't have a, I don't have a template for any other process, but the reception to this has been cool. And, you know, I, I know so many authors who have put out books and, you know, they struggle to get, you know, one radio hit or one podcast or whatever. And, you know, the reception to mine has been awesome. And so, you know, even though I, I answer the same questions a lot, it's a good problem to have. 
No, no, it's it's always better than uh, obscurity or indifference. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it's. I think like on my first book, I was like, oh, I I want as much media as possible. And then you kind of, you know, like you hear your whole life about I don't know, like celebrities or movie stars who are like. They're complaining about the press tour. I'm sure, you know, <laughs> nobody's complained more about the media obligations than Bill Belichick. But um, to uh, you don't quite understand it until you realize what how much it takes out of you as far as like getting back to the the work of either yeah. the next book or the next story or whatever it is. Absolutely. And, you know, you answer the same questions a lot and you don't want to be routine or flippant in that you know, it, it, it does take energy to answer the same question for the a thousandth time with the same energy as the first. Yes. And, and I think pe- people kind of um, gloss over the fact that, especially like for a football coach or a writer, usually you became great at that thing because you're not an extroverted person <laughs> who wants to, you know, like you, you, I, I got good at writing because I'm better at writing than speaking, right? And then suddenly <laughs> you're forced to explain this thing that you just slaved away at for a year. It's like, if yeah. I could have described this in two sentences, that's what I would have done. It is funny. And it's also, people always ask, for some reason, it's like the questions I get a lot are about the feedback, which is funny. And then people ask me, well, what didn't make it in the book? And I'm like, um... You know, I wrote 160,000 words. Like, if, if I could have gotten it in there, I, I put it in, you know? Sure. It's not really on my radar. What didn't make it in, but uh, it's okay. Well, what I thought point. was fascinating about the book, and I've read most of the books about the Patriots, mm. uh, and, and there's some good ones and some not so good ones. But what I thought was interesting is this way, and maybe this is a good place to start, you yep. sort of are... You and Brady start in the NFL, you writing about it and him Mm -hmm. as this sort of uh, third string quarterback at kind of the same time. And you're you're like vaguely aware of each other. Your lives are intersecting in different ways Uh, that that that, I thought that was an interesting device in the book. You know, I think it's one of the reasons why I decided to to write it, because, um, you know, as as luck would have it. You know, I ended up graduating from college the same year that he did, and we both kind of got our career breaks at the same time. And um, you know, I was hired at ESPN Magazine shortly after I graduated from college, and um, one of my very first, you know, I, I got a lot of like little stories to write, um, and sure. I got sent on the road to do to do little things. But in terms of like doing big features, I didn't, um, you, you know. It, I didn't get many, I think my first one was the first, was a year to almost the day after I had started. And so when I would get one of those opportunities, I was like, I have to do the very best I possibly can with this. Otherwise I may not get another one. And, um, and I remember, uh, my editors sent me to Foxborough, Massachusetts, um, you know, midway through the 2001 season to write about this, you know, upstart who had who's filling in well for drew bledsoe admirably for drew bledsoe and you know would probably end up going back to the bench whatever it was and um i i i called the patriots and i called brady's agent to try to set up an interview and um 
I think I just got a note back from his agent saying, yeah, you'll be hearing from Tom. And I actually missed the call. It was a, it was a 508 area code, you know, which is a Massachusetts area code. And, um, I think he said to be at the stadium at something like five o'clock. It was around that time. And, um, so I drove up to Foxborough from New York city where I was living at the time. And, um, I was waiting in the parking lot and it was very dark. And this guy, you know, pulls up in a truck and I remember he waved, he kind of saw me, um, as he was pulling up and he waved and, um, yeah, that, that was the first time I met Tom Brady. We go into the, you know, the old stadium was like a high school stadium. It was ridiculous. It was embarrassing. And we go in and we found a little table that was sort of near a gift shop. Um, and, you know, nobody stopped him. And he was wearing a gray sweatsuit and he carried a backpack that was full of beer like a college student because he had lost a Michigan, Michigan State bet. And, you know, we sat down and it was kind of interesting to look back on because we were both kind of the same species. We were young men who were getting going in our careers and kind of getting our break at the same time. Of course, the next time I really spent any time with him, you know, that was over. His life had changed forever. Um, and, uh, you know, but even back at that time, it was just kind of interesting, um, you know, to look back on it. Yeah, I just reread two of my favorite novels, which are uh, What Makes Sammy Run and then The Great Gatsby. And they both have that similar device that we're talking about where you have the sort of two people that kind of start out on equal footings and then one of them just becomes the <laughs> biggest thing in the world. And they're sort of this, they kind of have this unique understanding of each other, but one is one is just very different sort of one in a million type. And you're sort of both marveling slash horrified slash inspired slash cautionary tale of like what it takes to be, you know, to, to, to follow that to its maximum conclusion as some characters and athletes and people do in life. Absolutely. And this is not something I ever got into with, with Brady. Um, I might've discussed it with his dad at some point. I can't remember, but you, you know, I was obsessed with being a quarterback when I was in high school and oh, really? I, I worked, you know, I went to various camps and, you know, I, I would work, you know, every day by myself, throwing, throwing at stationary targets, throwing to any human being who would run routes for me. And, you know, I, I wasn't as talented as, as I needed to be. Um, and I never really like progressed as a quarterback in high school. Um, but I always, it just consumed me and I was obsessed with, with it. And I always wondered, you know, out of my high school class, class of 1995 around the entire nation, you know, who would be the great player out of that class? And it ended up being him. And he's the only hall of famer, you know, future hall of famer who will be a quarterback who will be from that class. And so I think that that is something that, you know, even though at the, at the time, remember, I didn't, you know, in November of 2001, I was just looking to do this assignment as best I could. I had no clue that Brady was even going to finish the season as a starter, much less, you know, become Super Bowl MVP, much less become a global force as he's become. But I do remember that, you know, he said at one point, he was like, you know, football has always come really easy to me. And I thought it was such a an interesting thing to say because um, first of all, it's like who, what 24 year old sixth round pick says something like that. Yeah. Right. And then, 
you know, I think that it always stuck with me in a weird way because he was fluent in a way in a game that I had tried to be and just, you know, couldn't be. And so I think that, you know, the mystery of, as you said, what it takes and what it takes to be great, what some of the costs of that are. And finally, you know, what are these special kind of qualities that allowed him to not only be a great player, but a, a transcendent athlete are all themes that, that, you know, I tried to explore in the book as best I could. Yeah. His, his childhood, which you go into in the book was fascinating to me because it's not normal, but it's sort of like middle-class normal. There doesn't seem to be any profound trauma there doesn't seem to be that sort of tiger parent. And I mean mm-hmm. that like, not just in this, the, the tiger parent phrase, but also like Tiger Woods parent, you know, mm-hmm. that athletes have. There, there didn't seem to be any of that. And yet he is not just profoundly driven, but then sort of so dominant in his profession. And I think usually we assume that to be both that great and that driven, it must come from a dark or dysfunctional place. Yeah. And I think that he probably felt slights a little bit more than, you know, you might assume from someone who came from such a loving, supportive, two-parent, you know, upper middle class, you know, type of family. Um, you know, and I think there was probably always a disconnect between how he saw his, his talent and maybe how the world perceived it. Even though, you know, this is something that, that, a lot of great athletes do and even, you know, kind of politicians is they have their internal narrative, right? We all have mm-hmm. our, our stories that we tell ourselves about how we got to where we are that, um, you know, become kind of central to our own narrative, even if we leave out certain details or whatever. And I have this moment in the book, obviously Brady's entire narrative and he's returned to, he's beat this drum throughout his life is, you know, that he was overlooked and maybe people didn't want him. And, you know, he, he always kind of, like I, like I, he said, he, the game always came easy to him, but people didn't notice it, but people did notice it. And I did write about his high school coach at one point in high school, Brady was practicing with his receivers and, um, it was a windy day in San Mateo and the receivers were struggling to catch the ball. And so he's just throwing it harder and cranking up the heat and they're still struggling to catch it. And he cannot handle it. He's losing his patience. He has a temper, which I write about often in the book, of which he's only you know controlled a little bit as an adult, slightly better than he did as a child. But his coach finally pulls him aside, his high school coach, and he says, you know, you got to be more patient. And Brady just didn't want to hear it. And finally, the coach just says, look, you're one of a kind. You're going to be playing in 10 years. None of these other kids are going to be doing that. And, you know, it was really kind of the first time that someone spoke to Brady and saw him in a way that he saw himself. And, you know, while he wasn't Peyton Manning, who got 55, you know, scholarship offers or whatever it was out of high school, he had some pretty elite schools circling him, including, you know, as it turned out, the University of Michigan. I mean, you're not overlooked if you get a scholarship as a quarterback to go to Michigan. Right. Uh yeah, you know, what's what's interesting is that it seems like both he and Belichick have that ability to cultivate a sort of constant underdog mentality that drives them, uh, whether it's fully based in anything real or not, it's somewhat beside the point. 
Absolutely. And I, I would put it a little bit differently. And it actually goes, uh, you, you know, it, there's some of the themes that, that result in that, that are kind of some of the things you write about in, in Courage is Calling. I mean, they're not Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> but, the, you know, they have their own ways of redefining what's possible and not settling for other people's idea of the inevitable. And I think that with them, the, the way to look at it is that they both came into each other's lives at a fascinating time. In 2000, both of them understood the inherent fragility in the profession that they were choosing, and they both needed the game in a way that was so central to their identity that I think that, forget about being happy, I, I don't know what their self-image would look like without it. And, you know, Belichick had had, had his, knife, his life, you know, an, annihilated in Cleveland when the Browns moved to Baltimore and he had to wait five years for another chance and then went, you know, ended up going five and 11 that first year in new England. And then you had Brady who, you know, even though he was, you know, overcame a lot and you talk about, you know, for what from his childhood, you know, hurt him in a deep way, obviously college, he was broken and he had to put himself back together again, but you know, he almost went undrafted. And so both of these guys, without really even knowing each other, kind of possess this same innate, I mean, it, it's it's a drive, I guess, but it's more like the, the, the knowledge that something that they hold so dear to them can be taken away at any time, and what would life look like without that? And I think it's one of the reasons why, frankly, they haven't been able to stop, <laughs> you know, two decades yeah. later. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. Yeah, you know, in, in my book, Ego is the Enemy, I was looking at Michael Jordan 
because uh, mm-hmm. he also has that same drive. He manufactures slights, mm-hmm. sort of is driven. Vindictiveness is the wrong word, but it is a kind of like sh- he he manufactures the slight and then is driven by proving you wrong for uh, believing in the slight that he kind of made up. Um, yeah. But but there's. I don't know. There's a lot of stories, obviously, about Jordan and that sort of vindictiveness of like, you know, players that he heard or cruel things that he said. Um, Brady seems to have that tendency, Belichick, too. And I guess there's some horror stories about Belichick. But but Brady seems to have danced off or maybe it doesn't exist. I'd be curious your thought. Brady doesn't seem to have that edge to it. Uh did you have you found that like yeah. when you talk to players are they like no just when, in private he does x or is it that he manages to sort of keep it within either a reasonable bounds or it's mostly directed at himself yeah so later in the dynasty belichick kind of he always commissions studies right and he sends his assistants to go do them and you know often there're statistical ones about all free agent running backs and their fumble history or whatever it is but he commissioned one that was kind of interesting and he wanted to know to do a sort of a psychological breakdown about a couple of mortal athletes and try to get at you know these inherent kind of traits that they had to see if the patriots might be able to use it as a predictor in the draft and they sure. actually interviewed michael jordan and tiger woods and kobe bryant and tom brady and you're right they all kind of had that edge to them you know where you almost like have to you know they're they're so hungry for slights and scars that even they'll manufacture them at times yeah like um, did you read the three ring circus you Phil Jackson's book? Oh no, no, no I'm sorry, Jeff Perlman's book. Yeah, you're like, yeah, yeah. You're like, wow, okay, yeah. uh, Kobe. Uh, yeah, even well, worse than I thought. Well, he kind of, and he obviously he just learned everything from the Jordan rules and from Michael Jordan, and, and kind of put it on steroids, right? Yeah. But Brady was different. It's not that he didn't have that in him. He definitely had it, but I think that midway through his career, he. And it's still going. So who actually actually yeah. knows when Midway might be? But he changed. And I think that, you know, when he was younger, I think that stuff would fire him up a little bit more. And then I think he started to realize that that manufactured conflict was kind of fundamentally unhealthy. And it's something that, like, he talked about with me. He's talked about it with other people. And, you know, he needed to try to find ways to... He just became more interested in like being a relentless positive thinker and all of his motivation being internal and not external. Huh. And maybe I think that maybe it was around deflate gate, you know, that it definitely helped him get through it, even though he was furious about it. But I think that maybe when he saw the world kind of collapse on him and so many people turned on him in deflate gate, he felt like that he couldn't rely on that outside world for anything. But he definitely became more looking inward with everything. And I think that when they did that study, Brady was different because, it, again, it wasn't that he couldn't find motivation from any cliched scars or us against the world mentality, but he seemed to thrive better when he was in a little bit more of a loving and kind of almost supportive environment, which is interesting given you know where he ended up sure. in Tampa Bay, which is like, you know, club med in a lot of ways compared to the Patriots. Well, no, uh, there's this stoic idea that I love. Mm -hmm. It's hard to follow, but it's this idea that you are strict with yourself, but tolerant with others. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think Kobe was a great example of someone who's just 
constitutionally incapable of doing that. I think there's a, yeah. a Rick Fox quote where it's like, you know, not everyone is Kobe Bryant, dude. Like you can't treat people as if they're you because you're just wired different. And Michael Jordan struggles that with a little bit. But yeah, it does. There aren't a ton of horror stories about Tom Brady as a teammate, which I think is interesting because it is, it's so hard when you're driven and great. And when you have not just defied expectations, but like shattered what is even conceivably possible for a human being to not expect uh, everyone else to, to like give their, to, 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 Mm -hmm. to, to not just not be like you, but you just want them to like, do their fucking jobs and not everyone does. Right. And mm-hmm. yet there, there doesn't seem to be horror stories about him in that way. He seems to find a way to play with just about anyone. Yeah. He's a perfectionist, but he's not an asshole. And it's yes. kind of interesting because he, he, um, he doesn't get, he, he, he has no problem yelling or getting in guy's face if they are not doing what they need to do, but he doesn't really make it, personal in a way that Jordan did and even kind of Kobe did. Um, there was a story in the book about uh, Dante Stallworth, who was a receiver on that famous 2007 team that nearly went undefeated. And, you know, so this is the preseason and Stallworth was acquired along with Wes Welker and Randy Moss to be Brady's new hotshot receivers. And Stallworth is, even though he was a first round pick, is going like, you know, I don't know if I match up to to these guys. You're talking about Randy Moss here and Tom Brady, and I got to really like get myself together. So in a preseason game, Stallworth is assigned a certain route that's a decoy route. And in the game, Brady and Brady throws him the ball, and Stallworth wasn't running full speed. The ball gets intercepted. And Brady comes back, and Stallworth, they're, they're on the sideline next to each other, and Stallworth is like, this guy's going to start screaming at me. I'm terrified. And instead, Brady just sits next to him and he just stares at him, <laughs> just stares into his eyes right there on the, on the bench until it's like so uncomfortable that's, that Stallworth is getting like leveled in a way that Brady could have never done verbally. He just stared at him and stared at him and stared at him until it was so impossibly uncomfortable. And then finally, Brady turned away. And that was all he, all he ever did in reaction to that play. Well, I think we often, it's hard to give people credit for stuff that they like could have gotten away with. But mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons that people tolerate it from Jordan, from Kobe, from other athletes is that like when you're the the guy on the team uh, and, and we're seeing this now sort of a reckoning with this in all facets, like you mm-hmm. can get away with being an asshole or, mm-hmm. or worse, right? As long as you're delivering the results. I think, I, I do think it makes it impressive or somewhat more impressive that he could get away with, like, I'm sure whatever he, if he had decided to say whatever he wanted, there wouldn't have been repercussions for it. Right. Because he's Tom Brady. And so this idea of like, no, I'm even going to hold myself to a standard that I can probably get away with, uh, you know, violating is, you know, is another level of kind of self mastery that I, I think again, contributes to the greatness. It's not like, Hey, look, he has this many rings, but look at the carnage behind him. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any of that. I've always found that impressive. It, it really is. And he's, he's, again, he's interesting because he always looks inward first. And when he got to Michigan, he told me, you know, he was a whiner and everything was somebody else's fault. Why he wasn't playing. 
why when he'd practice the one rep that he got, it wasn't going well. Whatever it was, he just he 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 thought he was the best quarterback on the team and felt like that, you know, it was like the world was conspiring to keep him off of the field. And he was gonna transfer to the University of California at Berkeley, closer to home. His parents could drive the games. And he meets with Lloyd Carr, the head coach at the time at Michigan, and he says, you know, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna go to Cal. And Lloyd kind of wants him to sleep on it. And that night he goes to meet with Greg Harden, who is his counselor. He had been assigned a, a counselor at Michigan. And, um, you know, he never really talked to Greg Harden much, but he had started to. But he tells Greg, you know, look, I can't get up on the depth chart here. I can't get on the field. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. And what does Greg Harden do? He starts laughing at him. <laughs> he thought it was funny. He didn't like give Brady a hug. He didn't even do tough lug. He just thought the entire situation was funny. And he goes, who gives a fuck if you leave? You want to leave? Go ahead. You haven't done shit here anyway. Basically, you're saying no one's going to care if you can't cut it and end up taking the easier route. And it really kind of appealed to Brady's internal fire and also forced him to grow up a little bit. So, so that night he decides he's going to stay at Michigan. He tells Lloyd Carr that he's going to stay at Michigan. And from then on, he really had to own his decision. He had been the one to stay there. And so whining about whatever it was, whether it was, you know, getting on the field or Drew Henson later on, whatever it was, he couldn't do it. And he had to figure out ways again to kind of master his sense of self and control everything internally that he could possibly control to be successful there. And I think it's a mentality that he never really, those are some deep scars. And I don't think that he ever really kind of left that mindset, even though now, you know, he's the most accomplished quarterback ever, maybe the greatest football player in modern history. The the thing that struck me most about the book, and uh, I have a bunch of other questions, but I, I've, mm-hmm. I've, we might be able to do the next 30 minutes just on this. So that's why I, I want to <laughs> talk about it. But so I, uh, I, I love dynasties. I love teams that stay together. I love, uh, you know, people that don't move teams. So I, when, when Brady leaves New England to go to Tampa, I think that it's sort of a, you know, is it, um, is it a Kawhi Leonard situation? You know, is it a, is it a, um, uh, Kevin Durant situation where you're sort of like, look, I get it from a business standpoint, but I, I hope you lose, right? Like, I hope it doesn't work out, right? Because like part of what makes football great is there does seem to be continuity. Players aren't like swapping teams all the, every year. So I was blown away. And I, so I sort of obviously didn't want them to win. They do win, but I'm sort of so impressed by the fact that he pulls it off that I'm begrudgingly respectful of it. But then when I re- read your book, I saw a totally different lens on this. Like, okay, here's a guy uh been with this team his whole career, deciding to leave. Is it about money? Is it about uh, winning? Is it about, you know, ego? What is it about? But my read, and maybe I'm making this up or projecting, but my read of your interpretation was, ultimately, Tom Brady loves football and he loves playing football, but he also loves his family. And his wife was basically like, we'll support you playing football as long as you want. But football, like following your dreams, should not make you a miserable human being. You should be able to enjoy being great at what you do. And if you can't, 
maybe you're not as great as you think you are. And so the decision to leave New England was less about where he could win or any of the other factors or control or, you know, Aaron Rodgers, you know, holding out because he wants control or whatever. It was, I want to be able to play football in a way that doesn't bring out my worst qualities as a human being, mostly off the field. And how can I do it in a sustainable way, in a way that makes me happy while still also getting uh, elite performance out of myself? Yeah, I think that, and this goes along those lines, and I think that it really, um, you know, did start at Michigan. But I think that football has always been about self-actualization for him. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, and I think it is for Belichick too, but in a different way. But I think that I didn't organize the book around Super Bowls. Um, you know, that wasn't the culmination of each chapter or each moment. I, I wrote the book as characters who, you know, about Brady and Bill as characters who evolve over time on purpose, because I think that the Super Bowls are almost like a weird accidental byproduct of a larger compulsion that has all kinds of factors that go into it. But with Brady, there's a reason why after the Super Bowl that they just won against the Chiefs in February, his wife and his kids come running onto the field. And the first thing she says is, what more do you have to prove? Because she's ready for Brady to retire. I mean, she left her own career to help, you know, raise their family. And and Brady, you know, his compulsions for you know, to get better and to improve in microscopic ways or even invisible ways that the rest of us can't even notice, you know, those have gotten worse over time. They have not gotten better. And he keeps saying, you know, I'm going to play till I'm 40 and then 45. And now who knows? And as soon as she asked him that, he figured out a way on the field right there to change the subject and not answer it. (laughs) Because he knew that while like the Super Bowl is like what they want out of each year, he knew that you know, it was about something else. Like, you know, what more could he do after this? And he knew it within seconds of winning the Super Bowl last year. I thought it was pretty phenomenal that, and it and it was one of those moments that really revealed, um, you know, what he's chasing. And that's something that even he struggles to articulate. Um, he just wants to keep going and keep going. I've been a runner for a really long time, as you know. But one of the best changes and investments I made a couple years ago was the decision to get into cycling. You know, bikes are not one size fits all. And when you want the ultimate personalized bike shop experience, talk to the experts at CompetitiveCyclist.com. They're the online specialty retailer of road and mountain bikes, components, apparel, accessories, trailers, everything you could possibly need. Plus, their gearheads, equal parts customer service and cycling fanatics, they can answer your questions about anything. They're former pro athletes, Olympians, seasoned cyclists with years of experience. You can go to competitivecyclist.com slash dailystoic, enter promo code dailystoic to get 15% off your first full price purchase. Free shipping on orders of 50 bucks or more. Some exclusions apply. Go right now and get 15% off plus free shipping at competitivecyclist.com slash dailystoic. Promo code dailystoic. Some exclusions apply. Well, and, and I've talked to, to different athletes over the years, and, and they, they all seem to have some moment of this where either they, they get almost there and they lose or they get almost there and win. And they realize that chasing either the trophy 
or whatever is never it's never going to make them feel the way that they want it they wanted to feel that they that mm-hmm. they're living this sort of dream life but depriving themselves of actually enjoying it while it happens because they're either so focused on the outcome or there's such like a pile of stress and nerves and expectations that it just sucks all of the fun out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then you have the Belichick system, which, you know, is pretty emotionless to begin with. It's not that it there's never fun, but it is not it. I mean, it broke Rob Gronkowski. I mean, he he retired from football, not only because his body was hurting him, because his his psyche was. And, you know, it, it, it is it is fascinating to look at people who are incredibly driven and in a lot of ways they are happiest when they're unhappy. And um, there's a moment I write about in the book with Brady's second son, Benny, and he's not as into sports as Brady's oldest son is, but he's very competitive within himself and he has a lot of high expectations for self and he's, he expects a lot out of himself, very similar to his old man. And there's one moment where Brady notices how hard his son is being on himself after something. And he tries to tell his son, like, bro, this is not the road you want to go down. Because in a weird way, Brady knows that world better than, he knows his son's future better than his own son does. All of those, like, sleepless nights. I mean, Brady used to not be able to sleep after a Super Bowl loss. As he got older, it became he couldn't sleep after he threw an interception, even if it was in a win of a game, like a regular season game. I mean, so do you think the lesson there is that that's actually not what's required to win? Or is it that that's what's required to win? And once you win, you can be a bit more privileged and choosy about it. I think it's so I think that it's this thing that people have and it gets worse over time and it's spectacularly unhealthy. And Brady right then saw that his son had it and was basically like, you don't want to go down this road because will mean a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of misery and beating the shit out of yourself mentally. And I thought it was just an interesting moment because, you know, as we know, our children end up being reflective of ourselves and they, they pick up on things that we don't even realize that we're putting out into the world. And that was a moment where they did it with him and it was revealing of him in a way. And, you know, just the mental, it's like, there's this Bruce Springsteen quote, more than rich, more than happy, more, you know, more than, famous I wanted to be great and I really think about that in respect to Brady and Belichick a lot because I think that inherent in there is an element of 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 unhappiness (laughs) that goes along with it yeah I mean do you have kids I do too would you would you want them like I think about this sometimes it's like obviously to be great at what you do at writing um it, it is a gift and it's a to be able to not just have a calling, but then be in a position to answer said calling and then to have success at some calling. Like so many things have to go right for that to happen. I don't know. I don't know if I'd wish it on my kids. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. No matter what it is, though. But I think it's like how it manifests itself. It's not just with writing. It could be whatever field that it mm-hmm. is. And I can definitely you know, see, I mean, my wife is, is, is a high achiever herself and I definitely see some of those traits passed on and I kind of laugh at it. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, I don't know if I can do anything to change this now. Like, you know, when, one of the things I write about in the book is, is Brady's temper. Mm-hmm. And when he was a little kid, he would go golfing with his dad and to throw fits when he would miss a shot, he'd throw clubs 
He'd bang clubs into the ground. His dad, you know, who's competitive himself, but, you know, isn't quite as bad as his son would, you know, say we're going home. This isn't how we act, whatever it is. But it's like that instinct and in, in those urges, I don't think have ever really gone away with Brady. I mean, you see them on the field sometimes. He obviously manages it better, but take like last year, they're playing the Bears and they end up in whatever it is, fourth and 27. He's so mad when they come to the sideline that he starts cussing at his offensive lineman. And I have it in the book where I write about it. And, you know, the, just the, the image of him doing that went viral. It's hard to articulate, you know, again, the level of like rage and these urges that these guys have to manage. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's part of what fuels you, but it's also fundamentally unhealthy. And yeah. or, or maybe it's that you tell yourself it what it's what fuels you like that. That's what to go back to the Jordan thing, which I found so interesting. You know, I wanted to dig into like this, like I got cut from the high school basketball team and then my drive is what put me back. It's like, no, you you didn't make the varsity team as a freshman or a sophomore. And then you grew six inches and then you <laughs> made the team the next year. So like you may well have told yourself that it was the drive and it was the work and the talent, but it was almost certainly much more to do with the fact that you're much taller now. <laughs> you can pick up this kind of script that, you know, it's the anger, it's the drive, it's the perfectionism that made you great. And that may actually be this sort of like parasite that's just attached to you that drains you, but actually is totally incidental to whether you're good or bad at what you do. And I think to me, maybe the inspiring part of this idea of going to the to the Bucks, and then you sort of see him lightening up as an athlete and and exploring other things. You're like, oh, actually, maybe it was never those things the whole time. And you can be great at what you do and not turn yourself into a machine. Yeah. But I mean, I do think that Brady has become a machine himself. And I think that his, his version of growing six inches, you know, was when he decided to stay at Michigan, like we mentioned, I mean, poor Lloyd Carr. I mean, Lloyd Carr is a phenomenally successful coach and everybody looks at him like the idiot who was looking for reasons to to sit Tom Brady and to play Drew Henson when I don't think that's quite fair because people assume that Brady was always fully formed and he wasn't. And it, like the real Tom Brady didn't quite exist yet because his version of growing those six inches was getting broken and rebuilding himself at Michigan and learning what it needed to, t to take to grow up and to, you know, play every down and to succeed on every down and all of these things. And it was interesting because when Brady first went to New England, he didn't even know where New England was, where the team was, but he sits in his first meeting as the sixth, you know, the sixth round pick, maybe the fourth quarterback on the roster as it turned out that he would be. But at the time he wasn't even guaranteed a roster spot. And Bill Belichick is hosting one of his first meetings after the draft. And he says, you know, no one's job is it. No one's entitled to their job you know, everything's up for competition. And Brady kind of sat back in that meeting and he's like, well, I can do this then. I've competed my entire life. And already like people would be intimidated by the NFL stage. And already he wasn't, I think in part because, you know, like I said, his version of growing six inches was kind of learning how to compete on that stage at Michigan. 
Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I took from the book is is you, you sort of go into depth of just how brilliant and methodical and relentless the sort of Belichick system is, but that maybe that it's it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's sustainable as a system, but it's not sustainable for the individuals inside of it. So everyone is sort of a cog in said machine and sort of Tom Brady as the individual trying to actualize himself uh, cannot ex- it's almost remarkable that he existed in it for right. 20 years. Uh, that's almost a, a, a feat of human, a superhuman strength, but that, that it's, it's not sustainable for the individual. It's probably not even sustainable for Belichick, but that it, it, you just can't do it over the long term. So I think about that. It, it's like, how do I, you're in my profession, you can do forever. Right. And so if you're grinding yourself down into dust, uh, you're not going to you're not going to last. You have to figure out a way not to beat the shit out of yourself. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons why he was able to, you know, thrive in it and, and survive in it as long as he was is because the, you know, unyielding demands that Belichick would put on everybody. Brady put that and in more in himself. And, you right. know, I think that around 2008 or so. There was a little bit of a philosophical split because Brady had hurt his knee and he was out in California and he was learning all these new training methods. And meanwhile, the Patriots kind of moved on and, and Brady, you know, that's where the genesis of the TB12 method and some of those things kind of really began to take hold. But even so, he was so driven in his own world, you know, that, that it ended up matching up well with whatever it is that, that Belichick was doing. And yeah, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing that Belichick, has been able to keep this up. It's one of the things that Robert Kraft marvels about is, you know, that Bill will often call Kraft, you know, on the way home from work at 11, 11.30 midnight to give him an update on, on what happened that day. And Kraft missed him and he calls him first thing in the morning, 5.45, 6 a.m. And Bill's already at his desk. And Bill, I mean, Belichick doesn't even drink coffee. He doesn't like the taste of it. He never has. It's just that he has this amazing energy and again, that goes back to the theme that we were discussing before of like the Super Bowls not being the end game for these guys. I mean, it's not Ray Lewis and John Elway and Peyton Manning walking away on top. The Super Bowls are like this byproduct of this other thing that, as it turns out, is incredibly, you know, sustaining and durable and, you know, has these guys continuing to do this at this age when they could have, you know, gotten off the highway many times. Well, it's, it's not that it's it's almost like it's not that they don't think about winning. It's that they measure on a small like winning is too big of a horizon. They think more of like the immediate, like much smaller metrics. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, it's like the interception is bothering him, not the loss. Yeah. Uh, or, or, you know, like uh, it's a smaller thing. So the Belichick, it's like obsessing over or, or Saban. It's like winning a national championship. But like getting exciting getting excited about a recruiting call he can make like as he leaves the field right like mm-hmm. he he's obsessed with the the individual component parts that that indirectly lead to the outcomes uh and and often favorable outcomes but is actually less interested in that and more of the day-to-day grind of it yeah i mean these guys are obsessed with process i mean the process is as essential to their lives as like almost their families maybe even more so if they admitted it you know maybe with a drink or two into them but 
like go back to the Super Bowl that the Patriots lost against the Giants that cost them the undefeated season. You think about all the memorable plays in that game. And the one play that that night Brady could not stop thinking about wasn't the helmet catch, you know, one of the greatest plays in NFL history. It was the very first offensive play for the Patriots where they had a screen pass set up and it should have gone for a touchdown. And Brady was under pressure and he fired low and he missed the pass. And because of that, it was an incomplete pass. And the Patriots ended up scoring on that drive anyway. But he could not let that play go. The whole game would have been different had, well, he, yes. had they scored on that play. Yeah. If, they, if they had just like knocked out the, the Giants off the get-go and showed them they had no business being on that field, who knows what, have ha- what would have happened. And that was like the play that he really couldn't let go of that night and maybe ever, as it turns out. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary discounts not available in all states and situations with everyone fighting for attention how can your business stand out and connect with customers easy get constant contact constant contacts award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out stay top of mind and see big results fast constant contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and sms marketing social media posting and even events management these tools would have been super helpful to me when i was growing the daily stoke when i was writing my first book and in fact have been right the daily soak is built around email marketing that may well be how you heard of this very podcast with constant contact you'll reach new audiences grow your customer list and communicate more effectively to sell more raise more and fast track growth so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at constantcontact.com just go to constantcontact.com right now constant contact helping the small stand tall constantcontact.com well, the, so the blessing and the curse of like, I only focus on what I control is the, the, the blessing is it gets you through being a six round draft pick. It, it gets you through being second string at Michigan or that, you know, I'm going to focus on what I can do. The curse is that, yeah, you're obsessed about this minor variation on something that ultimately did go well because uh, you see how had you done your job better it would have gone better yeah and it doesn't it it gets worse over time rather than waning um you know my my best friend is is a a unbelievably talented and and great writer named wright thompson yeah Uh, he's who connected us yeah exactly and he you know wrote one of his best stories was on michael jordan around the time that michael jordan turned 50 and it was just i love that story it's incredible it was incredible and it was also incredible because here michael jordan was at age 50 with 
every tangible thing you could have in life except the one thing that he wanted to do most, which was be able to play the game that brought him more joy than money and travel and fame and anything ever could. And it was kind of a sad portrait of someone. And I remember when I read it, I had just interviewed Brady. I'd spent a day at his house um, working on a story. And, you know, he had casually said that, you know, he was going to play 10 more years. And at that time he was 36. And I almost missed it when he said that. I was like, you know, I wonder if he's just saying that, you know, like, you know, he can't really mean it. And I didn't see a lot of parallels between himself and Jordan. And then you realize that there are a ton of parallels because he almost saw, I don't know if you read that story or not. I did. He, oh, no, I, I don't know if he did, if Brady oh. did, but like that was a glimpse into his future. <laughs> yeah. And he, he, whether he read that story or not, he kind of intrinsically knew it. And, you know, he had just decided that he was going to micromanage and do every possible thing he could to avoid that fate, knowing that he's just one of those people who, like Bruce Springsteen or somebody, needs to do this. And there is no such real, there's no real type of, you know, idea of retirement. He just has to keep doing it. Yeah, I remember reading, uh, so everyone who, uh, almost any normal person who watches the Jordan Hall of Fame speech is sort mm -hmm. of like, ugh. You know, like it's like a, it's a it's a discordant note uh, in, you know, a, a song that you, you really like. You're just like, whoa, that's not that's not mm -hmm. who I want Jordan to be. Right. And I remember reading something like Tiger Woods watched it and was like, yep, that's what it takes. You mm -hmm. know, and so you're sort of watching two <clears throat> unhealthy people, um, mm -hmm. you know, sort of confirm each other's unhealthiness, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's what's so interesting about the transition to Tampa and the, the the continuing to win and play at the high level, or at least what you talk about in the book, that there was at least, you know, that it, it, we're not talking about Tom Brady post-divorce, post-public scandal, post-whatever, having to reckon from rock bottom with, uh, you know, trying to do it a different way. It struck me as inspiring and, and weirdly, again, a, a kind of a different kind of greatness to go, yes, I'm still me. I still want to be the best in the world. I still want to do this. But before it's too late, I'm going to take some sort of positive steps towards self-care, towards balance, towards integration. Mm -hmm. um, like, And that it didn't come at the expense of performance. It actually may have enhanced performance. I, I, I'm excited about that. Yeah. And, you know, when he was 26 or 27, he was interviewed by 60 Minutes. And at one point, Steve Croft asked him, you know, what scares you? What do you fear the most? And I don't even think this made the, 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 the story in 60 Minutes. I read it in the transcript. You know, at the moment, right then, he said the end of my playing career. He was 27 years old. I mean, wow. he... Talk about knowing yourself, sure. as we've talked about. I mean, he knew who he was at that time. And I think that one of the most interesting, the most interesting part of the book for me to write and to think about, and even to talk about, is the middle of the dynasty, when Brady and Belichick went almost 10 years without winning a championship. Because it's, it's astounding that not only that the team, you know, their, their relationship, their working relationship survived it. Both of them did something that I think is really brave. And they went back and they essentially reevaluated their entire belief systems, belief systems that had worked better probably than any in modern NFL history, because 
they realized that they were coming up just short. And what what do they do when they're better than 99.8% of people who do this and they need to make it 99.9? You know, you think about that Super Bowl, the second one they lost to the Giants when Brady had Wes Welker open and missed him in the fourth quarter. And even though Welker got kind of hammered for not catching the pass, it was a bad throw. And Brady had to think about how do I become two inches more accurate in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl as I'm aging, as, you know, all of these factors are coming into play. And that's really where, you know, a lot of these, he rechanged, you know, he, he retooled his entire throwing motion. He throws the ball differently now than he did um, when he was 24, 25, 26 years old. And, you know, I think that that part of it was really interesting to me because you saw their striving in a level that's almost inconceivable. They were in a cultural and professional thin air and yet they had plateaued and they had to figure out a way to get over. It's not over the hump. It's over that last little couple inches of difference. That was the difference between them winning Super Bowls and losing them. Yeah. It's, it's like, I don't know. It's almost easier to be great and fundamentally unbalanced Mm -hmm. than it is to be, great and one sustain it but two you know sort of have other things in your life yeah i mean absolutely and you know nobody has ever accused tom brady and bill belichick of being you know well-rounded people i mean brady has talked often about you know the the strain that his drive and his profession and his internal competitiveness and expectations have had on his on his marriage i mean yeah but it's still there. I mean, that that is impressive, right? Like, yeah. you know, you well, look it's impressive at that he recognized it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but also that it that it didn't that he was, you know, like I think especially you can imagine, especially that far into your career, you're that successful, you're Tom Brady, you could go you could you could make the wrong choice, right? Your wife maybe talk about the letter that Giselle wrote him that you talk about in the book, but your your verdict or your response to that letter, and I think it probably is for some of the champions we've talked about, is like, you knew who I was when you married me. I'm not changing. Yeah, and I mean, I I think that he's tried to change in ways, but you know, both Belichick and Brady are very stubborn people, and um, you, you know. I don't, this is pure speculation on my part, but, you know, I do wonder if there's a reason why why Bill Belichick, you know, never got remarried. I mean, clearly he's wearing a ring now as of this year. And so maybe something had changed and, you know, they're, he and his longtime girlfriend are committed to each other, but it always made me wonder whether, you know, when he got divorced in 2005, 2006, whenever it was, he started dating his, his, you know, current life partner, you know, pretty shortly after that. And yet they were never remarried. And I always wondered if it was because Bill knew himself so well to know that while he was trying to achieve what the things that he was trying to achieve, he could not, you know, commit so much of his life to someone else. Obviously, like maybe he's come to a point where, you know, that's different for him and, you know, he feels like he can do it. Um, Again, this is all complete speculation on my part. I have no reporting or insight into this and I could be totally wrong, but it is something I've always been curious about because with Brady, on the other hand, he didn't even, you know, for the longest time, he didn't want to have children young. Like he had, he had like looked at quarterbacks who were in their thirties 
And he thought that like they had started to slide as players, not only because their bodies were breaking down, but because their attention was diverted and they weren't as resolutely focused on, on football like they were before because they had families. And he was always like, you know, that's not going to be me. And yet then he had, he had his son at age, whatever he was, age 29 or 30. He marries Giselle Bunchen and they have two more children and he has to figure out a way to balance that. And the balancing, as we all know, is difficult, if not impossible. And yeah, there was a moment where it was in 2017 where Giselle Bunchen wrote him a letter because she was dissatisfied with the state of their marriage. Because, I mean, you know, he's someone who, whose seasons would end, the football season would end. And then, you know, he was immediately trying to explore new ways to train and new things he could change and evolve and new business opportunities for TV 12. And, you know, there really wasn't an off season. And, um, you know, clearly that was something that needed to change and did. Can did you I hear me? You? Yeah. Did I yeah, lose yeah, you? Sir. It, yeah, it was weird. It was weird, but I, 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 it's all recording natively, so we should be fine. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I, to me, that's the, that's the journey that that's, that's the, the ultimate journey, right. Is like, mm-hmm. uh, how do you, how do you not just uh, sustain greatness in the physical level as a uh, as I think he's he's done um, in, in you know trying to preserve the body, trying to, to to sort of defy aging. How do you sort of stay hungry and want to do what you do and stay sharp? That's the sort of mental side. But then there's also this kind of sort of spiritual element of it, which is like, how does it not make you worse? How does it not destroy or infect all other parts of your life? And mm-hmm. how do you um, how do you create, like, it, it's like, you know, what good is two other rings if you're sort of lonely and miserable, you know? And I think to me, that was, that, that, that seemed to maybe be the trade-off, although it actually ended up with an extra ring and perhaps one more, uh, or two more depends on how long he can play. But just the idea of like, I'm going to try my, my challenge is how do I be great at what I do? And be as close to uh, a functioning human yeah. being when I'm not on the field as possible. And I just, I think about that as a writer. It's like, you want to mm-hmm. be great at it. You want to write as many books as you can. You want them to sell as well as you can, but you don't want to fucking end up as Hemingway, you know, <laughs> uh, that's not winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Brady, you know, they once lost a playoff game um, in new England and, you know, his kids are up and they, you know, they're young. They don't care at all about, the pain that he is suffering that, you know, they're focused on their worlds as they should be. And he needed to be their audience. And he talked to me about how hard that was. You know, he said it was impossible actually to try to, you know, be as present for his kids as he, as he should have been at that moment, but he was trying. And, you know, as, as you know, as a parent, I mean, you're, we're not perfect all the time. The trying is what matters. And I think that that's really interesting because, Again, it goes back to what we said at the beginning of the conversation is that like, you know, nobody, I think in modern football history has been able to focus on what's in front of them and what they can control like Brady and Belichick. And that goes for, you know, family moments and football. I mean, but football, especially these guys are very different personalities, but they are both optimists in a way that I think that even like it's even within the world of sports, it's easy to take for granted. Um, no, they have never, not once, 
conceded to anybody else's idea of the inevitable. Um, you know, you think about Brady and you know, what it took to come back from double digit fourth quarter deficits twice in Super Bowls. You think about Bill Belichick and all of the great goal line stands that his defenses had engineered over the years, going back to, you know, 1986 when he was with the Giants and they played the Broncos in the Super Bowl and had a goal line stand. Like these two guys are able to forget about what happened in the past and focus on what's in front of them in a really special and unique way, even if it turns out, you know, especially after a playoff loss or something like that, it's, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it's not as clean as maybe we would have liked. Um, there's a moment in the book where Brady loses a game to Washington and he had had a chance to rally the team in the fourth quarter on one of his famous drives and, and came up short, didn't, didn't get it done. And his dad just keeps calling him and calling him and calling him. And, um, Brady will not pick up the phone, which is very rare, especially when his dad calls. Finally, his dad leaves a voicemail and he says, you know, there aren't any bridges in Boston high enough to jump off. And Brady calls him back within a minute and he says, you know exactly how I feel. Right. <laughs> it's a, uh, oh man, it's a, it's a great book, a great story. Um, I, uh, I loved it and I'm so glad you sent it to me and it's been, uh, it's been awesome to talk. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your help. I appreciate you reading and I appreciate your work. I mean, it helped oh, inform you. a lot. It helped inform a lot with this book. And, um, you know, obviously your work has been, you know, digested and considered and practiced by the Patriots over the years. And we didn't even get into that. We'll save that for the next No, uh, we didn't. That's, <laughs> that was a, a weird random fluke uh, of, uh, of, of certainly not what you expect when you write a book about an obscure school of ancient philosophy, but uh, it's, it's, it's opened up some cool doors. I bet. Thank you very, very much. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, everyone should read this and we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate your help, man. Thank you. My new book, Courage is Calling, is now officially a New York Times bestseller. Thank you so much to everyone who supported the book. It was literally and figuratively overwhelming. We signed almost 10,000 copies of the book, which just, you know, it, it hit me right here. And I appreciate it so much. If you haven't picked up a copy or you want to pick up a signed copy as a gift, please do. You can get your copy at dailystoic.com slash courage is calling, or you can just go to store.dailystoic.com. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. 
the problem. This dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.